Good morning, and thank you for joining the worship service at Palmetto Baptist Church in Powdersville, South Carolina. Let me invite you to turn in your Bible to the text that uh, we uh, read together this morning. And uh, as we look at that text, let me just observe that for most of the centuries of the Christian church, this particular Sunday, the Sunday that we're in today, was probably the third most celebrated Sunday of the year. The Sunday that was closest to January 6th was celebrated in the Christian church, particularly by the Western church, although the entire church has done it since about the second century. Uh, They celebrated together something called the feast or the celebration of Epiphany. How many of you have ever heard of Epiphany? I see your hands. All right. Uh, th- that was a term as I was growing up. I, I never, I heard every once in a while. I never really understood it, but it celebrates the time after Jesus' birth, in which the Lord was manifested to the world as the Savior, not just of the Jews, but of the Gentiles. And so, as we looked at our passage from last Sunday together, as we looked at the arrival and the worship and the royal authority of the name of the infant that they worshipped, all of those events were what gave rise in the Christian community and the Christian church to the feast or the celebration of Epiphany. And it was always done 12 days after Christmas. You know the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas? It was not written to celebrate 12 days leading up to Christmas, it focuses attention on the 12 days after Christmas. Most of you have already put your Christmas decorations away, haven't you? Mostly, maybe. How many of you, let's just have a little time of confession here. How many of you still have your Christmas tree up? All right. Proud hands immediately shoot up. Uh, How many of you have all of your decorations up? How many of you have taken down at least one ornament and put it away just as a token of what is to come? All right. How many of you have completely cleaned all evidences of Christmas from your house? Okay, so this is about half. We're about half and half. And so all of you who still have your decorations up, you're good epiphany people. And all of us who've taken them down, uh, we have work to do in our spiritual life. But the events in our text this morning come at the culmination of a record that Matthew has given us to help us understand the monumental thing that took place both historically and even more important theologically with the arrival of the birth of the Messiah in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And maybe the best way that has helped me to understand this, because when you try to put all of this together and then you you sort of impose over it the, the two chapters in Luke, sort of these events can become segmented out and and it's hard to see how they all fit together. So one of the ways that's helped me to think about this is to think about Matthew writing a pageant. And the pageant has five parts and it has one overarching message. And I don't think I would have seen the message if I hadn't observed the parts And so let me give you the parts again. I gave them to you last week, but let me give them to you again. And let me suggest as you look at your Bible that you mark these parts in some way where they occur in the text. Part one 
of Matthew's pageant, Act 1, or Part 1, is in the first 17 verses of Chapter 1. And it's where he introduces the lineage of the person who's about to be born. And he does it in three sections. This person is the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. And he's going to become the adopted son of Joseph, which is going to put him in the legal line of one who has the right to sit on the throne. So that's Act 1. It's a long act. It's got a lot of names. And as you look at that act, it's easy to miss two things about that act. So when you're watching this part of the play and Matthew starts introducing the lineage of the one who's coming, he introduces you to five women. And those women aren't in there just to make sure that we're being politically correct. Those women have an amazing function in that lineage. And then he introduces you to an event. Usually in a genealogy, you're not talking about events. But he introduces you to an event, and he mentions the event twice. And the event is the deportation to Babylon, the captivity, the exile. All right, so that's Act 1. Curtain closes. You have a little bit of time for the stage to be reset. And then Act 2 begins. And Act 2 starts in verse 18 of chapter 1 and goes all the way to the end of the chapter. And it is the story told through the eyes of Joseph, the man who is about to adopt Jesus and bring him into the line that will give him the legal right to sit on David's throne. And so Joseph is being given, uh, he's, he's being brought into the story of this miraculous birth it's, it's supernatural means, it's theological significance, and it's divine intention that God himself has come to dwell among men in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And there are two names, you'll remember, that are introduced to us in that act. One of them is the name Jesus, and we're told that he's to be called Jesus because he will save his people from what? From their sins. But then he's also to be called Emmanuel, and he's to be called Emmanuel because he is, in fact, that person that Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 predicted would come, that son that would be given, and he is the Messiah, but he is also God. And right in the Isaiah passage, he is called Mighty God and Everlasting Father, two titles that can only be applied to God. And so all of a sudden, in Act 2, this person that we knew was coming from Act 1 has arrived, and we've seen the miraculous means of his birth. We've, we've seen the theological reason for his birth, and we see the amazing identity of the one who has been born. And then the curtain closes. And then Act 3 begins, and Act 3 in Chapter 2 goes from verse 1 to verse 12. And this act is going to introduce us to a king who is angry and several wise men, several magicians, several magi who are going to travel from the east, from Babylon, all the way to Bethlehem 
to come and worship this king. We noted as we looked at Act 3 that Matthew wants us to pay attention to the way God has been working. He worked in the heart of Caesar Augustus to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. He worked in the heavens through this miraculous supernatural light to get the Magi all the way to Bethlehem. And we're going to find out that God is not done moving uh, in the hearts of uh the players in this incredible drama that is playing out. And the point of Act 3 was that this king that has been born isn't just going to rule over a tiny kingdom that uh, existed in little part in the backwaters of the Roman Empire. He was going to rule the world, and all of the nations were going to come and worship him. And we see these magi coming from Babylon with connections all the way back to Pharaoh, in Egypt and all the way back to Daniel in Daniel chapter 2 and these people who would have absolutely horrified any upstanding Jew have come to render worship and that's where we left the story act 4 in the play is the first part of our text it opens up in chapter 2 verse 13 and it goes all the way to verse 15 And it's the story of how the king of Israel, this little baby, this infant, the king of the world, is actually going to become the chief representative and the embodiment of an entire group of people, a people that matter deeply to God. In fact, God is going to refer to these people as his son. And in the Old Testament, this son had a mission. This son had a role to play, and they failed dismally. And all of a sudden, in the birth of Jesus is a second son, a second Israel, an embodiment of a new and better Israel who will accomplish for Israel everything they were not able to accomplish. And to make that point, Matthew ends the act by pointing us to an Old Testament prophet named Hosea, and we see a prophecy out of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And then the curtain closes, and there is an intermission. And the intermission begins in verse 16 of chapter 2, and it goes through verse 18. And we don't know what the intermission is doing. We just know that it is brutal. It is absolutely stunning. It is jarring. It is shocking. When you read about the brutal, wanton slaying of innocent infants in the city of Bethlehem who just happened to be born there at the time of Messiah's arrival. And the entire region is mourning. And Matthew inserts that in the middle of this celebration. It's like you're hearing this beautiful concert and, man, the first movement has happened and the second movement has happened and the third movement left you breathless. And the fourth movement has just ended, and you're getting ready for the final sort of crescendo, and and the cymbal player just goes wild, just starts clanging on his cymbal, and you're like, whoa. And the conductor's looking around, and all the rest of the players are looking around, and that cymbal player's oblivious. He's just banging away on his cymbal, and, and he won't stop. And finally, he stops, and everybody sort of gets quieted down again, And you come to the final part of the drama, and the final part is in verse 19, and it goes all the way to verse 23, and you find out 
that the person you met in Act 4, who's the embodiment of a new and better Israel, is actually a new and better Moses who's going to come with a new and better covenant. He's going to come with a new and better righteousness, and he's going to lead people into a new and better kingdom that's going to extend throughout the world and whose foundations will never be shaken. And the curtain closes, and the buzz starts. Wasn't that great? Wasn't that an awesome, wasn't that an awesome pageant? And then somebody says, all right, but what was the point? That was great. Act one, act two, act three, act four. The cymbal player was like out of control. Act five, and it was stunning, and it's over, and we're all walking out, and we all have the same question. What was the point of the pageant? And I want to suggest that the point of the pageant may not be what you think. It certainly wasn't what I thought when I was working through this. And I sort of had to come to this. And as, as I began to unpack this and the Spirit of God began to work in my own heart, I began to wrestle in my own heart with the implications of this pageant for me. And by the way, you should as well for you. Because this pageant has as its main thrust the idea that at the birth of Jesus, the kingdom of God invaded the kingdoms of the world. This wasn't just the birth of an innocent infant. This wasn't just the birth of Israel's long-awaited son of David who would one day sit on their throne. This wasn't just the birth of a religious Messiah of a nation that existed throughout the Old Testament. This was the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, and when it arrived, it, it shook the kingdoms of the world. When this kingdom arrived, there were two massive implications, and the first of those is this. The arrival of this kingdom shook the kingdoms of the world to its very foundations. That's the first thing. When you get done with this pageant and Matthew starts explaining it to you, he is saying this is all about the arrival of a kingdom. And when this kingdom arrived, it shook the kingdoms of the world. And all of a sudden, that symbol player makes sense. You're beginning to understand why the symbol player in the pageant went nuts. This kingdom shook the kingdoms of the world. This is exactly what God said would happen in Psalm 2 when this Messiah arrived. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? But this kingdom also demands a response from every human being living in the world. We cannot escape the implications of what Matthew is saying to us. If this kingdom has arrived, and its embodiment is in Jesus, then every person in the world has to respond to this kingdom. So that brings me to what we want to look at this morning, and that is simply this. What is the response that the kingdoms of the world have to the kingdom of heaven and to its embodiment in the person of Jesus? What is the the response of the world, and more importantly, what will be that response to us as followers of this king 
and as members of this kingdom. When the kingdom arrived in the person of Jesus, how did the kingdoms of the world response and respond? And more importantly, what can we expect? And, and, and even more than that, how does God respond in the face of that opposition? Because when you think about how the world responds to the kingdom, the world responds by opposing it, by rejecting it, and by doing everything to destroy it. The world opposes the kingdom of God by rejecting it, by opposing it, and by doing everything it can to destroy it. And that really is the posture of the world toward the king and toward all of his people who are part of that kingdom. The book of Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 says that God has been taking people out of the kingdom of darkness and moving them and rescuing them and giving them a permanent place in the kingdom of his dear son. And, and so you can see throughout the rest of the Old Testament, or sorry, the rest of the New Testament, what we're reading about here is really the, the, the evidence of two kingdoms that are in conflict with one another. And so how does God advance his kingdom? How does God protect and preserve those who are part of the kingdom when they encounter the opposition and the rejection and the persecution intended to destroy them? How does God do that? And I think there are three things I want you to see this morning before we pray together. And the first of those is in verses 13 through 15. There is divine protection in the face of relentless opposition. There is divine protection in the face of relentless opposition. Matthew minces no words. He immediately brings us right into the heart of things. This family, Joseph, Mary, and this little infant, who are the harbingers of this new kingdom, the embodiment of the new kingdom, are in mortal danger. Herod, verse 13, is about to search for the child to destroy him. There is urgency to the revelation the Lord brings to Joseph through the angel in the dream. There is intensity. Joseph, you need to know that six miles from where you're located is a man who is about to marshal all of his strength, all of his energy, and the vast wealth and resources and military might available to him, and he's coming after you. And he's coming after Mary, and he's coming after that baby that's been entrusted to you. Herod may have been sitting in his Herodian. Some of you have been over to the Herodium, beautiful, stunning uh, tomb of Herod, that it, during the time of Herod's life was a palace, a military fortress, and it's only four miles from the events that we're reading about. And the angel of the Lord shows up and he says, I, I want you to know that the most powerful man in your world, he has all the resources. He is Herod the Great. He's a great builder. He's a great architect. He's, he's a great political and savvy political leader. He is ruthless in his opposition to anybody who's going to come anywhere near touching his kingdom. Ask his wife, ask his sons, who he strangled toward the end of his life to hold on to that little throne that Rome had given him. And he has decided 
that he is going to do whatever he has to do, including murdering all the babies of the village, to make sure he is not unseated from his throne. And the angel comes with urgency and intensity to reveal the malicious intent of Herod to obliterate the child. What hope did a little carpenter from Nazareth have in the face of all of this? You ever feel that way? I mean, what hope do we really have as followers of that king? What, what hope do we have? What res- I mean, think about our resources. I mean, here we are. We're in a rented facility. I mean, what hope do we have if the forces of evil were to actually zero in on us? What hope do we have? You might feel that personally. What hope do I have? How in the world am I going to survive when this is coming against me and that is coming against me and these people are opposing me? What hope do I have? And what you notice in this section is there is an immediate protection that comes from God's revelation to this man. God says to Joseph, I know something. Herod is going to send soldiers to murder that baby, but I'm going to send my own soldier. I'm going to send one of my angels from one of my armies, and he is going to warn you. He is going to give you the way out. And you can see it in the text, right? Look at verse 13. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. This is the second time, or the third time rather, that we, uh, sorry, the second time that Joseph receives a dream. There's a third time coming at the end of the chapter, and and he gets warned, and there is a way of escape. The angel has a solution. God has a solution. Joseph, I want you to take Mary and the child, and I want you to go down to Egypt. This is the third time in the history of the nation of Israel that God has sent his people to Egypt for protection. It happened in the days of Abraham and Isaac. It happened again in the days of Joseph, and now it is happening here. And God is saying, I want you to take Mary and her child, and I want you to go down to Egypt. Now, this protection that came through divine revelation was acted upon through the obedience of a devoted servant. I mean, think about Joseph. His whole life in this narrative is constantly being disrupted. It's constantly being interrupted. It's in constant turmoil. I was going to get married. I had, I had the woman in my dreams. We were going to have a little house. I've got this job I've been working on, and, and we're going to have a, a baby, and, and it's going to be great. And his whole world blows up when Mary shows up pregnant. And God appears to him in a dream. And now he's here in Bethlehem, and the baby has arrived, and the Magi have come, and again, his world is blowing up. And here's what's interesting. Every time God blows up Joseph's world, Joseph responds in obedience. Every time. Every time. I've got these plans. I want to go here. I want to do this. I'm a just man. I want to serve the Lord. And God says, that's not what I want you to do. And every time, three times in the text, when, when, when Joseph gets this from the Lord, here's what it says, and Joseph did what the Lord said. He was compliant. He was obedient to the Word of God. He was obedient to the Spirit of God. You know, sometimes you and I have big plans about what we're going to do for the Lord. 
I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go here. This is how I've got it all planned out. And God sometimes comes along and says, that's not what I want you to do. I want you to stay right here, or I want you to go over there, and I want you to do this. And it's hard. We sort of resist that. Or maybe it's the other way. Maybe God says, I want you to go here, or I want you to go there. And it's hard because it disrupts our carefully laid plans, things we're excited about, our hopes, all of that. And here's Joseph. And three times in this narrative, Joseph's life is upended for the sake of Jesus. And he obeys. I wish I were more like Joseph. I think probably if you were honest and you looked at your own life, you wished you were more like Joseph. And all of this is to get Jesus down to Egypt because there's an important theological reason that is going on, and Joseph doesn't know it. I mean, here's the thing that's so amazing to me about Joseph. He gets information from God, but he never gets the whole picture, and he still obeys. We're like, Joseph, you have no idea what's going to happen this is going to be awesome, but Joseph says, all I know is this angel came, and he told me to get down to Bethlehem. He told me to marry Mary, and now he's telling me to go to Egypt, and so off he goes. 75 miles down to Egypt's borders. There are about a million people, a million Jews living in Egypt at that time, and so for the next year or so, Joseph and Mary and Jesus are safely ensconced in Egypt. So what is God doing? Why all of this? And, and the answer is this. It's what Matthew pointed to. It's that all that Hosea said would be fulfilled. And what did Hosea say? That out of Egypt I have called my son. So what in the world is going on there? If you go back to the book of Hosea, that text is talking about a time in Israel's history when a group of people are going to be carried off into captivity, and God wants you to know who they are. These people who the Assyrians are about to take off into captivity and destroy everything that they have and bring them into brutal subjection, these people are God's children. God says, these people are my son. This is my son Ephraim. Ephraim was uh, in the history of Israel's people, one of Joseph's sons, and he came to represent the northern tribes. And here are people who belong to God who are being carried off into captivity and brutalized, and God wants the world to know who they are. These people are my son. There's only one other time where God identifies the nation of Israel in those terms, and you have to go all the way back to Moses in Exodus chapter 4 to find it. And in Exodus chapter 4, God says to Moses, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh a message. And here's the message. When you get there, I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my firstborn son, Israel, go so they could come and worship me. You say, Pastor, I, I hear you, I, I get the sun bit, but what's going on with the sun, this sun language? And the answer is this, that there is another sun. Israel was the son of God in the Old Testament, not the second member son of God, not the, the second member of the Trinity relational 
sonship that we have with Jesus. But as Jesus identified this nation to the world, he wanted the world to know, this nation is my son. It is my firstborn. In the next chapter, Matthew is going to take us to the baptism of Jesus. And at the end of that baptism, God is going to speak from heaven to the world. And he's going to say, this one is my what? My son, my beloved son. And so what you have here is a massive identity being revealed to you that this Jesus who is being taken down to Egypt for safety, just like Abraham and Isaac and Joseph, is actually the son that is going to accomplish everything that the first son was supposed to accomplish and didn't. God had a mission for this son. God had a mission for Israel. God had a purpose for Israel. And the reason they're going into captivity in Hosea 11 is because they blew it repeatedly. They couldn't accomplish the mission. They couldn't love God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind. They couldn't keep the law. They couldn't live faithfully. And they certainly couldn't bear God's name to the nations. And God sent prophet after prophet after prophet. And by the time you get to Jeremiah, this nation is gone. And God says, I'm not done with that nation. In fact, I'm going to raise that nation up, and I'm going to give it a, a powerful representative. I'm going to embody that nation in a person, and that person is going to do everything that nation could not do. This person is going to fulfill the law perfectly. This person is going to love me with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his strength. And he is going to fulfill all the mission that I gave to that person. And his name is Jesus. And to make sure you don't miss this identification, Jesus as the new Israel, I'm going to send him down to Egypt. And I'm going to call him out of Egypt just like I called my firstborn son in the Old Testament the nation of Israel. This is a stunning identification. Well, why does he have to go to Egypt? And the answer to that is obvious. This is where the symbol player starts banging away. The answer to that is that the kingdom of darkness is going to oppose this new and better Israel who's been embodied in the person of Jesus. And to help us understand how to respond to that, and how to, how to sort of make sense of the symbol that's just clanging away around us, Matthew says, let me give you the second part of the, this little section we're in. There is divine comfort in the midst of ruthless persecution. And you can see that in verses 16 through 18. And we've already kind of pointed to the fact that Herod does an atrocity here. He slaughters a whole village of infants, two years old and under. Now, I want you to stop and think about this for a minute. This is not the first time this has happened, is it? Can you think of another political ruler, cruel, tyrannical, malicious, who murdered two-year-old infants? Herod was doing it to destroy Jesus and to stop the kingdom that he represented. But in the Old Testament, there is a Pharaoh who is going to destroy all the babies who are born in Israel, and, and he doesn't know why yet, 
But really what's going on is there is an attempt to keep Moses out of the picture. So all of a sudden you've got a king in the New Testament and a king in the Old Testament, and they're doing the same thing. There is this atrocity that is happening. They are two in a long line of antichrists who are going to stand against the leader that God is going to raise up to deliver the world. And behind them, in Revelation 12, is an even greater antichrist, a satanic opponent named Satan. He's described as a devil, a dragon. And in Revelation 12, he is watching for the birth of a child so that he can devour the child. And that child is going to be born of a woman that has 12 stars on her head. And you know immediately that this is the nation of Israel. And so in all of this, Matthew says, now as you think about that, as you think about Herod and Pharaoh and the dragon and what they're doing to oppose this new Moses, I want you to remember something. I want you to go back to Jeremiah 31, and I want you to remember that Jeremiah gave instruction to a woman who was weeping. And that woman had been dead for a thousand years. She was the mother of the nation, and she was weeping in Jeremiah 31 because her children were being held in a little town called Ramah on their way to the Babylonian captivity. And if you read Jeremiah 31, the next thing that Jeremiah says to the woman is, dry your tears. Stop weeping. These sons that are being carried off into captivity, they're all going to come back. These sons whose heart is so hard and and they reject and disobey me, their heart is going to be softened. Their heart is going to be turned to me. There is hope for your labor. There is a future for you. There will be mercy. There will be rest. And this is going to come, Jeremiah says, when somebody greater than Moses arises and he brings to you a covenant that is new. There is a new covenant. Jeremiah 31 is right in the middle of a section in the book of Jeremiah called the book of consolation or the book of comfort. And it's like Matthew says, as you read about the slaughter of these infants, I want you to remember that this isn't new. This has always been how the dragon has worked to destroy the sun. It happened in Moses' day. It happened in Pharaoh, with Pharaoh and Moses, and now it's happening with Herod and the baby. But God is saying to all of you who are weeping in the midst of all of this anguish, dry your tears. The one who is going down to Egypt is going to come back, and he's going to bring a new covenant with him. He's going to bring a new hope with him. He's going to give you a better righteousness, and he's going to establish a better kingdom. Wow. No wonder the symbol player is going nuts. If I'm Herod or I'm Pharaoh, that's the last thing I want. And if I'm somebody who's looking at Jesus and realizing Jesus has the right to rule my life, that's the last thing I want. And sometimes the opposition is fierce and sometimes the opposition is harsh. 
But in the midst of all of that, there is comfort in the midst of all this opposition. There is not just a new Israel, there is a new Moses. And this Moses, when he arrives, is going to bring a new covenant with him and a new righteousness and a new strength and a new mercy and a new rest. But as we close out this morning, all of this is living down in Egypt. So for the next however many months, Joseph and Mary and this little baby, this new Moses who's the embodiment of Israel are secreted away down in Egypt. And back in Jerusalem, nothing has changed except one thing. Herod died. But nothing changed. His son, Archelaus, comes to the throne. He's as radical and as cruel and as tyrannical as his father. He's just not as politically savvy. And the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and he says, Joseph, it's time to go back. And Joseph's like, well, okay, I'll pack up and we'll head back to Bethlehem. But, but now, now God has to get Messiah all the way back up to Nazareth for a theological reason. And the reason is so that he would be called a Nazarene. That's an interesting thing because you can look through the entire Old Testament prophetic literature and you will never, ever find a prophecy where Jesus is, where somebody says Jesus will be called a Nazarene. And there are two things I want you to think about as we close. One of them is this. When you called somebody a Nazarene in Jesus' day, it wasn't a compliment. Nazareth was this little tiny village up in the northern part where all the Gentiles, all the unclean Gentiles lived in Galilee of the Gentiles. And right in the middle of that was this tiny little village of nobodies called Nazareth. It would be like you saying the Messiah is going to be a hick from the sticks. And, and nobody would ever have imagined that. That's why Nathaniel in John 1, when, when he's told, hey, we found the Messiah, he's Jesus and he's from Nazareth, first thing out of his mouth is, what? How can anything good come out of Nazareth? Remember that? On top of the cross, remember when, uh, when Pilate wrote <coughs> the, the wording across the top of the cross? Jesus of what? Nazareth. In Acts 24, the followers of Jesus were scorned as the sect of the Nazarene. This was a, a, a derision, sort of a, a mockingness. What did Isaiah 53 say? He was what? Despised and rejected. But there's something else besides the derision and the rejection. In Isaiah chapter 11, we read about a branch that is going to come out of the tree that God cut down. David's tree was cut down, but it didn't die. There's a branch that's going to come out of that tree, and that branch is going to have a ton of fruit. It's going to bear a lot of fruit. You know what the word branch in Hebrew is? It's the word that we get the word Nazareth from. You know, if you were sort of looking at the word Nazareth and you were sort of saying, well, what does that word mean? It means branch. You could say, this is branch town or this is branchville. And if you lived in Nazareth and you came from Nazareth, you were a branchvillian, just like you're a greenvillian or, or whatever, you're a branchvillian. Here is a branch coming from branch town, and Isaiah 11 says there is a branch that is going to come out of David's house, 
and he is going to bear fruit. Can you read the rest of Matthew? And there first are 12, and then there are 120, and then there are 500 followers of the Lamb who've been taken out of the kingdom of the world and put into the kingdom of his dear son. And then there are more than 500 who see him at one time. And then you start reading through the rest of the New Testament, and there are tens of thousands of, of people who are the fruit of this branch all through the Roman Empire. And, and down to our day, there are hundreds of millions of us all over the world. This branch, this kingdom, has borne fruit. And there is more fruit to come. So what do I do? Can I give you four things to do? And we'll pray. If you're a part of this kingdom, understand you are in the kingdom of the world, but you're there for a reason. If you're part of this kingdom that this baby came to start, seek that kingdom fervently. Serve his purposes faithfully in the kingdoms of the world. I mean, we're here because we're part of a glorious kingdom and we're supposed to be reaching the people in the kingdom of the world. And that's the advances gospel personally part. Enjoy his presence passionately. You know, when you think about what Matthew's doing, he is announcing the invasion of a kingdom by another kingdom. He's announcing the fact that the kingdoms of the world have been invaded by a king who is going to bring with him a kingdom. And in Revelation 11, here's what you see at the end of the story. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the sun. And all of heaven celebrates that. You and I are part of that kingdom. We don't see the physical kingdom here yet. That's coming. But we're part of that kingdom. And Matthew has set it up for us. We now know what to expect. We know how to handle what's coming our way. And we, we know what to do as we align ourselves with the king and we serve his purposes and advance his gospel in the kingdoms of the world where we're at. Lord, thank you that we could sit and listen to Matthew and be instructed by him. Lord, thank you that your word is powerful. It is true. And Lord, as we let it unfold, as we pay attention to the structure, as we see what Matthew included and, and how he put it, where he put it, Lord, we are amazed at the arrival of a king who is bringing with him a kingdom that will never be shaken, that will never be moved, that will be marked by righteousness and flavored by peace. And Lord, out of the kingdoms of darkness, you have been taking people and you have been making them part of that new kingdom. And we have enjoyed that. We have received that because of your son. Lord, there might be people here this morning who are still in the kingdom of darkness. I pray that you would open their eyes and you would quicken their heart and that you would help them to see the truth of what they've been hearing over these Advent messages so that they would receive the king and they would repent of their sins and become part of this kingdom. Lord, help us to live in ways that advance the kingdom. Help us to celebrate the truths about the kingdom and help us to rejoice in the king to whom we belong. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with Palmetto Baptist Church. 
We trust that the message was a blessing and hope that you will come and join us next Sunday at 9.30 a.m. at 100 Powers Boulevard, Piedmont, South Carolina.